Hello, welcome back to the PJ Pod. This episode is an update on the previous one, covering everything you need to know about the COVID vaccines. And once again, we will be discussing your questions and some of our own. I have with me over Zoom our features editor, Dawn Connolly. Hello. And our science and clinical editor, Julia Robinson. Hello. I am executive editor, Nigel Prates. So, a lot has happened since our previous episode. Yeah, a lot. It doesn't actually seem like that long ago that we were here last time, but so much has happened. An awful lot has happened, doesn't it? It's quite hard to keep track of everything, especially when you're full of mince pies. (laughs) So where do we start? Well, shall we have a catch up on what's been going on since the last episode? So, of course, we're all in this national lockdown now, and that's set to continue for at least another five weeks. And this is down to the new variant of coronavirus that's now circulating in the UK, and that's much more transmissible, so it's sent cases skyrocketing. Um, But the big news on the vaccine front is that we have two new ones now approved. So there's the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which was approved on the 30th of December, and then just last week, the Moderna vaccine was approved, and that one's an mRNA vaccine, so that's similar to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which we already have. Of course, all of your questions came in before the Moderna news, so the rest of this episode, we're going to be focusing on the other two vaccines, and that probably makes sense because the Moderna vaccine isn't expected to be available in the UK until the spring. Now, the Oxford-AstraZeneca approval is significant because unlike the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which needs to be stored in a freezer, you can store this one at normal fridge temperatures. So that takes away a lot of the complicated logistics around storage and distribution that we've seen with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine deployment. And that's been rolled out now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So the first doses were delivered in hospitals and GP-led clinics during the week of the 4th of January. And there's plans to expand that to community pharmacies and mass vaccination centres. But hasn't there been some developments regarding the intervals you use between doses? So the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, that's the committee that advises the government on vaccinations, they've now recommended that the second dose of both vaccines are delayed and should be given 12 weeks after the first Now, that's basically because we're in this situation where there's a huge number of cases and they really want to vaccinate as many people as possible with the first dose. So the government set itself a new target of vaccinating all of those in the first four priority groups. That's almost 15 million people by mid-February. Now, around two and a half million doses have been administered in the first month of the campaign, but we need to be administering around two million doses per week to reach that target. So we're nowhere near that, are we? Yeah, but things really seem to be ramping up. So by the end of this week, so that'll be the 15th of January, there should be over 1,000 GP-led sites, over 200 hospital sites, seven mass vaccination centres, and also we've got 200 community pharmacies coming on board which will be delivering the vaccine. Now, 200 pharmacies is obviously a drop in the ocean, but there's plans to expand that to more, and there's talks between pharmacy trade bodies and the government which are ongoing at the moment, But we'll just have to wait to see whether that happens. Regardless, I don't think the rate limiting factor at the moment is the capacity, but it's the continuity of supply of the vaccine. And we've already heard some GPs complaining that they've not been able to get stocks of the vaccine. Sounds like we've got a packed show ahead of us. So um, can we just dig into that new variant? Obviously, that's been the big news recently. How will that affect these new vaccines? Yeah, so the emergence of this 
new variant of the coronavirus has definitely dampened the sense of hope that came about with the start of the vaccine rollout in the UK. And there's also similar variants also emerging in South Africa and other parts of the world. However, it has to be said that the emergence of these variants is not wholly unexpected because viruses mutate all the time. We know this. That's how they escape from our immune responses. And also, there's no evidence yet that these variants will be resistant to or be able to escape the current vaccines that we've got available. So the vaccines work by generating a large number of antibodies and T cells in the body, which will work even if a small number are compromised by these specific mutations in the virus. But ultimately, the more you vaccinate, the more you put evolutionary pressure on the virus to mutate. So we will need different vaccines in due course. So what we need to keep an eye on is if further evolution of these variants starts to impact on the effectiveness of the vaccine in the future. Yeah, so this is a concern. Um, There was a small study that came out last week conducted by Pfizer along with a US university and they looked at blood samples from 20 people who've been given the vaccine and they said that it still appears to work against the mutation that makes these new variants more transmissible and several of the other mutations as well, but they didn't look at all the mutations, so there's still more work to do there. What are the experts saying, Julia, about this? Yes, I spoke to Steve Griffin. He's Associate Professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Leeds, and this is what he told me. So yes, it's a concern. It's something to keep an eye on. And in the UK, we have this fantastic genomics surveillance system looking at the strains of the virus, which is how the new variant was picked up in the UK first anyway, the UK variant. Similar variants have arisen across the world, which suggests it's actually more of an adaptation to infecting people. Because remember, this virus jumped across from probably bats or an intermediate host, potentially. So these variants aren't really responding to us getting immune. It's it's probably just getting better at infecting us. But there are definitely some changes that could affect how some people's responses to either the vaccine or infection could protect them, but hopefully not in the short term. Just shows you how we we really need to get cracking on this vaccination programme, doesn't it? Can we just briefly look at the evidence on the efficacy of this first dose of each vaccine? Because obviously that's related now to the, the extension of the interval between doses. I mean, the main controversy is that the trial for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine only looked at giving those two doses 21 days apart. So extending that to 12 weeks isn't something that was studied Now, the JCVI, the committee that advises the government on vaccinations, they've looked at the data and they've calculated that after the first dose, then the vaccine efficacy for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is around 90%. And they say that there's no evidence that suggests that this starts to wane after the 21-day period. Um, However, Pfizer have come out with a statement which just reiterates that they don't have any data to show that there is protection longer than for 21 days after that first dose. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, that's a slightly different story because they did look at different dosage intervals in the trials. So they're able to say that their vaccine provides protective immunity for at least 12 weeks. And in fact, there's some evidence that extending that dosing interval actually improves the overall immune response. So the vaccine effectiveness there has been calculated at 73% for up to 12 weeks after the first dose. And immunologists are broadly supportive of this, aren't they? Yeah, but I spoke to Steve about this as well. And actually, these were his thoughts on the matter. It is clearly a risk to take by applying the AZ findings to Pfizer. WHO have come out and said that. Pfizer and BioNTech have come out and said that. 
my personal belief is that if you've done a phase three trial and you've shown a medicine works effectively, and these are some of the biggest trials that have ever taken place, let's not forget, I would be very reticent to change that protocol. I think that they will work, but I think that you're going to run into problems about potentially having that lower efficiency protection, which may in the long term drive escape mutations. You may also get this issue that the Pfizer immunity may not last as long. Chances are it'll be fine, right? But you can't really take a chance at the moment. We've taken a few too many chances in this pandemic already, in my view. And I think it's just a bit unwise to change one medicine because of what we've seen in another one. It's quite a strong view from him there. There's just no consensus, is there? Yeah, I mean, I think I can understand why the government are advising this because, you know, the public health argument is that there's so many cases around, they just need to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible with that first dose. And yes, there might be slightly lower efficacy, but you know, they think that's the way of reducing hospitalizations and deaths. And that actually relates really well to our first question, which is all about um, what the licensed doses interval actually is. Um, and that was from Sadia Khan. She's a pharmacist and policy manager. What is the licensed dosage interval for the vaccine, please? Plus, where does responsibility rest if the product is prescribed, dispensed or administered outside of its licensed dosage recommendation? We could have predicted a question on this. Yeah, well, of course, this relates to what we've just been discussing, really, doesn't it? So neither the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine have a UK marketing authorisation, but they have been authorised um, for temporary supply. So it's slightly different. And the authorisation recommends that an interval of at least three weeks for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and of between four and 12 weeks for the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And these recommendations are all published in Information for Healthcare Professionals on the gov.uk website. Um, Now, interestingly, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been approved in the EU. It's got a conditional marketing authorisation there. And they also recommend the same thing, an interval of at least 21 days. However, the European Medicines Agency has said recently that the gap between the first and second doses should not be longer than 42 days. And that's because in the clinical trials, although the planned dosage interval was 21 days, participants did actually receive the second dose between 19 and 42 days after the first. So any change beyond 42 days, this is according to the European Medicines Agency, they say would be an off-label use and they'd need to update the marketing authorisation. But obviously we're out of the EU now, so that doesn't apply in the UK, but it is interesting nonetheless. So the 12 weeks, that's not licence. So how can you... Well, it kind of is licence because they word it at least 21 days. So you are covered administering it with that dose interval. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In terms of liability more generally, in England, the government are providing clinical negligence indemnity for community pharmacies that are acting as COVID vaccination sites and pharmacy staff vaccinating in NHS trusts or in GP practices will be covered by existing clinical negligence schemes. But of course, people need the usual professional indemnity insurance because they're going to be accountable for their own professional practice. These state-backed schemes just cover clinical negligence. And we had a question from a pharmacist who was saying, what's the RPS position on the dose interval? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so the RPS released a statement on this just a few days ago. They said that although the change in the planned interval had raised some concerns, they actually strongly supported it because 
as we were talking about, ultimately is the way to protect more people more rapidly. In their statement, they highlighted that the clinical trial data shows that substantial protection from developing COVID is given from the first dose of the vaccine. And although the booster dose is essential for long-term protection, it can be given later. There are also a couple of other statements, one from the British Society for Immunology, who said that most immunologists agree that delaying a booster dose would be unlikely to have a negative effect on the overall immune response post-boost. And the Royal College of General Practitioners also said that the JCVI had put forward a compelling case that this was the best way forward to protect as many people as possible from the virus. That's reassuring, I suppose, for pharmacists who are administering the vaccine. And obviously, of course, trust in general amongst pharmacists and the public is really important. Yeah, and that public trust is something that pharmacists can really help with. Um, We've got a question here from Sabuhi Sata, a pharmacist in London, and she's asking about how pharmacists can reassure the public about the safety of the vaccines. Hi, PJ Pod. My name is Sabuhi, and I'm a rotational pharmacist at King's College Hospital in London. My question is, how can pharmacists, as one of the most accessible healthcare professionals, assure the public on the safety of the vaccine, as well as the fact that it won't have potential future implications on an individual's health when we are questioned? Thank you very much. This is a great question and one I thought was best answered by a pharmacist who's directly involved in a COVID-19 vaccination programme. So I spoke with Fazilla Jumaboy. She's the lead pharmacist for Central North Leeds Primary Care Network and she's co-leading the COVID-19 vaccination delivery there in the PCN alongside the lead GP. So I think pharmacists and pharmacy teams are such an accessible and important resource to the NHS. Um, I think they're a little bit underutilised And I think that actually when it comes to public education, pharmacy teams are in the best place to be giving that information out to patients. I think the most important thing that pharmacy teams can do is be informed themselves. Have a look at the evidence and the data for the vaccines. Stay up to date with the primary care bulletins. Attend the primary care webinars wherever possible. That way they can have a frank and reasoned conversation with members of the public that they come into contact with. The question about potential future implications, I guess, is slightly trickier because we don't have several years worth of follow-up data to fall back on like we do with the influenza vaccines. However, both vaccinations that we do have access to, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the AstraZeneca, both of which have gone through a rigorous approval process by the MHRA, and it continues to be under surveillance. So I think the public can have confidence in that. And I think if pharmacy teams can articulate that to patients and the public, then that will be one step forward in engagement. Well, I, I did hear on the BBC or some people who were refusing the vaccine because they wanted the British one. Did you see that story? How can you deal with that situation? What Fazilla was saying was, although she saw some people really grateful for it, she said there were also some sceptical people out there. Um, so I think it is important to bear that in mind when you're delivering a vaccination programme. I think one of the questions people are asking, as you allude to, is whether one of the vaccines is better than the other. And actually, I think it's really unhelpful to think of it in this way as the vaccines have never actually been directly compared and they were developed using quite different methodologies. So I think what we've got to bear in mind and what we what pharmacists need to tell patients is that they've been approved according to the exact same tests of safety and efficacy. So whichever vaccine they receive, they'll be getting one that's highly effective and that's going to be able to achieve this goal of saving lives and reducing hospitalisations. 
And it might actually be that a vaccine that had slightly lower headline efficacy may actually prove to be the one that offers more durable protection or has a greater effect on transmission. Ultimately, having two vaccines available and potentially more in the future means that the pace and volume of the UK vaccination programme can increase. So that's really what we should be focusing on. And of course, pharmacists themselves might be wondering when they're going to be eligible for vaccination. Can you give us a bit more details on that? Well, we've actually got a question about that, haven't we, from Jagdeep Dilvar? When will community pharmacy staff be eligible for vaccination? So the latest on this from the Pharmaceutical Services Negotiating Committee, or the PSNC, is that pharmacy contractors can now proactively approach CCGs and NHS trusts to secure vaccinations for their staff. So in a statement on their website, they said... NHS England and NHS Improvement had confirmed that community pharmacy staff are included in the category of frontline health and social care staff who are eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine. And trusts in England have been asked to make substantial progress in vaccinating these groups by the first week in February. In Scotland, the guidance is the same, pretty much, but there isn't a timeline yet as they're still delivering vaccines to the first priority groups. And in Wales, the responsibility has been delegated to the local health boards, which means that the timings will be slightly different in each area, depending on what the setup is in that region. But overall, all patient facing pharmacy staff across the UK will be offered the COVID vaccination as part of priority group two in accordance with local delivery strategies. What about pharmacy journalists? Where are they on the list, Julia? Oh, goodness, I think we're a long way down that list. Well, that depends how old you are, doesn't it? True, yeah. Okay, so we won't be a priority, but what about locum pharmacists? Uh, We've had a question from Karen Daniels and she's asking about that. Here she is. Hello, podcast. I'm Karen Daniels, a locum community pharmacist. Regarding the vaccination programme for frontline healthcare staff, has any consideration been given to allowing locum pharmacists to be included, i.e. how do we get on the vaccination list? Also, as a locum, I'm unable to help with the annual flu vaccination as the retraining every two years is expensive and not advertised to us. Is there a plan to enable locums to get the training and so be available to help with COVID and flu vaccination without great expense to ourselves? Thank you. So yes, NHS England have confirmed that locum workers are included in the cohort of NHS staff that are eligible to receive a vaccine. And the RPS is encouraging all locum pharmacists who have not already been contacted to get in touch with their main contractor or a contractor in their geographical location to get details of how they can receive the vaccination. And what about the training for locums that Karen asked about? In terms of the training, I don't think that this would be any different for locums than it is for employed pharmacists. So training to administer COVID vaccinations includes e-learning courses, a period of supervised practice and a competency assessment. But we have logged a query with Public Health England for Karen on that. And if we get a more definitive answer, then we'll put that in the show notes. So we have a question from Ken Blood. He hasn't recorded his question, but his was about whether the flu vaccine affects the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, this is a great question. And with it being winter, it's quite a pertinent one as well. I thought this was a good opportunity to rope in another expert. So I spoke to John Tregoning. He's a researcher in respiratory disease at Imperial College London. And this is what he said. 
So I wouldn't expect the influenza vaccine to affect the COVID vaccine because they work differently and they're targeting two different viruses. It may be that if you have both at the same time, you might get a slightly more acute inflammatory response. So you might get a slightly raised temperature or more of a headache, basically the combined of the two immunizations. And what it may be worth considering on a practical level is giving the immunizations in different arms. And that way there won't be any kind of overlap in the sort of effects of the two vaccines together. But no, there should be no effect of flu vaccine on COVID and likewise no effect of the COVID vaccine on the flu. Well, that's good news then, isn't it? Although two numb arms instead of one. Yeah. <laughs> I've also had a look in the Green Book, and that's considered to be the vaccination bible. So just to see what the um, official guidance is. And that confirms really what we've just heard in that there shouldn't be any interference between the two jabs. But it does say that it would be useful to separate the two vaccinations by at least seven days. And that way there won't be any incorrect attribution of potential side effects with the COVID vaccine. But they add that if someone just turn up who has just had the flu vaccine, then in most cases, then the COVID vaccination should still go ahead. So we have another question from Bernard Black, who's a retired pharmacist. He was asking about how much immunity is there after recovery from COVID-19 and is a vaccine then necessary? Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit in our last podcast, but obviously time has gone on a little bit since then and we know some more about it. So I went to John Tregoning again to see what he thought about this. So we're still learning a lot about this virus. It's a new virus and we're coming to understand it more and more. So understanding how long the immune protection is going to last is really relates back to when the first cases were. And then the most of the knowledge is coming from people who were infected six to eight months ago. A very recently published study in science showed that the antibody responses in people were still stable six months after infection. So the antibody arm of the immune response seems to be stable over time. There was some decline in the T cell responses, which are the cells which directly fight virally infected cells. But you might expect that to happen anyhow, because you, you don't want to have an activated T cell response the whole time. So we know that protection lasts at least six months and it may be longer. And this is information we'll learn over time as the time since the first case is, is longer. Yeah, so it sounds like natural immunity does last quite a long time. But John then went on to explain exactly why we still need to be vaccinated. Just because the immune response lasts in people who have been infected doesn't mean we shouldn't be vaccinating people because the majority of people still haven't been infected with the virus. So your vaccine will give protection to all of those people who've been shielding or at high risk and protect them from any virus that's circulating out there. So it's very important, especially now when the rates of infection are so high. Yeah, and we had a related question, didn't we, from Stuart Nichols, a locum pharmacist in Kent, and he asked, can you still transmit the virus after you've received the vaccination? And the answer to this basically is that we don't know yet. I can tell you that the Pfizer-BioNTech trial didn't look at transmission, but in the Oxford-AstraZeneca study... They did do weekly swabs to check for asymptomatic disease, and these demonstrated that the overall incidence of infections decreased, not just the incidence of symptomatic COVID. So that did suggest that there was an effect of the vaccine on transmission. But um, they say that more data is needed to confirm this. But it was actually quite a small group, wasn't it, that they tested with these weekly swabs? Yeah, that's right. It wasn't everyone. It was just a small cohort within the trial. We really need an answer to that, don't we? Because that will affect whether we get to herd immunity or not, won't it? Yeah, that's right. And we're not going to know the answer really until there's been further studies 
or long-term data on transmission among vaccinated populations? Yeah, so at least until we get an answer to that question, then it's essential that even if people have been vaccinated, they still need to maintain social distancing, wear a mask and wash their hands as we have been doing. So the last few questions are really getting into the nitty gritty of the vaccines and the guidance around who should and shouldn't be getting the vaccine. So we had a question from Helen Maynell. So she's a consultant pharmacist and she was asking about anaphylaxis. Hi, PJ Pod. It's Helen Maynell. I'm a consultant pharmacist at Doncaster Royal Infirmary. My question is, can you have the COVID-19 vaccine if you get anaphylaxis from exposure to penicillin? Yeah, so it's an interesting one because the advice has changed a little bit as we've learned more about the vaccines. Um, So during the first week of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine being administered at scale, there were two reports of anaphylaxis and one of a possible allergic reaction. So the MHRA acted really quickly and advised that anyone with a history of immediate onset anaphylaxis due to vaccines, medicines or foods should not receive that Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. However, since then, obviously, we've given a lot more of the vaccinations and the MHRA has reviewed the data and they now advise that it's only people that have a history of allergy to any of the ingredients in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that shouldn't receive it. And in fact, the vaccine protocol now states that people with a history of immediate onset anaphylaxis to multiple classes of drugs or an unexplained anaphylaxis shouldn't have it either. And in this situation the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine can be used as an alternative, as long as that person doesn't have an allergy to those ingredients, of course. And we'll put a link to the product information into the show notes so that you can check the ingredients at your leisure. Yeah, so on the topic of changed guidance, I think it's probably worth mentioning that since our first podcast, advice around the use of the vaccine during pregnancy has also been updated. So the JCVI now advises that if a pregnant woman is clinically extremely vulnerable, so if she's got a severe respiratory condition, for example, she should discuss the options of a COVID vaccination with her doctor. And this is basically because these people are at a higher risk of experiencing the serious complications if they do contract COVID-19. And the same is also true for pregnant women who are frontline health or social care workers as well. So they've got a higher risk of being exposed to the virus. The JCVI also now advises that there's no known risk in giving these vaccines to breastfeeding women. So they can be offered vaccination if they are in one of the eligible groups. We did actually have another question, which I suppose is a little bit linked to this topic. And we were in two minds, I guess, about whether or not we wanted to include it, because it could potentially fuel unnecessary panic around the vaccine. And this question was about concerns around fertility and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Many people have concerns regarding potential long-term effects of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine on fertility in particular, along with other potential long-term effects. Have you any other further information on these potential long-term effects? Thank you. So I think this theory about fertility potentially came around for some concerns that were voiced by the former head of respiratory research at Pfizer. Uh, and he was talking about the fact that spike proteins, so the proteins that are being targeted by the vaccines, also contain these proteins called syncytin. And these are essential for the formation of the placenta in mammals, including humans. And he was saying that it must be ruled out that a vaccine against the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, wouldn't trigger an immune reaction against this syncytin protein, because if it did, infertility 
could potentially occur in vaccinated women. I guess no wonder if it's coming from someone who used to work at Pfizer that it's popping up all over the internet, this theory, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But actually, when I spoke to Steve Griffin, he was really very firm about the fact that it's not something we should be worrying about. It's nonsense. And I'm not just saying that because I I don't believe the people saying it. Um, Scientifically, there isn't a basis for it. So what the person that you're talking about noted was that if you line up the sequences of the spike protein with a particular protein that's expressed in the placenta during pregnancy, which is actually a protein which we've acquired from another virus, it's called syncytin, if you line that sequence up, then there's a similarity between four or five amino acids in a row, okay? And yes, that's the same, but you could do that for a very great many proteins in our bodies for a four or five amino acid sequence, okay? And you could do that for some of the fundamental building blocks of our cells itself. So if it was the case, then everyone that had this vaccine would be trying to liquefy themselves if they were given it. And we know that this vaccine is extremely safe. It's been given to tens of thousands and now hundreds of thousands and millions of people across the world. And no one seems to have devoured themselves with their white blood cells. Okay, so technically speaking, because of central tolerance, which is this process of eliminating the self-reactive T cells, and because of the minimum requirement for antigen presentation, and literally the reason nature does that is because any combination of four or five amino acids is going to recur across our bodies. We've got over 20,000 proteins in our bodies in different combinations. If we had that sort of response system, our immune system would be completely detrimental. So I'm afraid that it's a misunderstanding of very, very basic immunology and it wasn't peer-reviewed, it wasn't subjected to any kind of scrutiny other than on social media. And what unfortunately it has done is fed an anti-vaccine narrative, which has led to, you know, your viewers asking those sorts of questions. And that's really worrying. I think we've just been sat in the naughty chair, Julia. (laughs) Yeah, I think this response kind of highlights the frustration there is around people who are fueling misinformation around the vaccine and how this could potentially inhibit vaccination programmes. Yeah, but it is really important to rebut these theories, isn't it? And he's definitely done that. Yeah. I think we've got time for one more question. And this is something that we didn't have to hand in our last podcast. And it's all about the phase two data and whether or not it's been published. This is a question from Zishan Ahmed, which landed in our inbox. Hi, PJ Pod. My name is Zishan Ahmed. I'm a pharmacist working in the pharmaceutical industry. My question regarding the Oxford AZ vaccine is, when can we expect to see the published phase three data? And eventually, where will the SPC for the vaccine be available from? Because the Pfizer one wasn't readily available on the EMC website. Okay, so with the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine, I checked with the team in Oxford and they say that they're going to publish the final analysis or hoping to publish the phase three analysis at the end of January. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, they've already published the phase three trial data on the 31st of December and that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. We'll include links for all of these papers in the show notes. With regard to the SPC, that's the Summary of Product Characteristics, Because these vaccines don't have a UK marketing authorisation, I think that's why these SPCs are not on the Electronic Medicines Compendium website that Zishan is talking about. But all of that information is available on the gov.uk website in the Information for Healthcare Professionals. And for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, like we mentioned earlier, that has been approved in Europe, so you can access the SPC for that one on the EMA website. And again, we'll include those links in the show notes. 
Good stuff. I think that's all we have time for for this episode. Thank you to our listeners for submitting such great questions. Yeah, some really in-depth questions this time around, so thank you. Yes, they certainly gave us a lot to sink our teeth into. And thank you to our experts for giving us their time and bringing us such clarity. What about us, Nigel? Yeah, come on. Oh yes, thank you also (laughs) to my co-hosts, Julia and Dawn who have been feverishly uh, researching all your different questions. You're welcome, Nigel. Oh, no worries. I'm just glad to get through it with minimal interruptions from the kids and the dog. Yeah, we've done quite well on that front. And finally, a big thank you, most of all, to our listeners. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer next time, then get in touch through our website or on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. 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 You have been listening to PJ Pod, brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. You can join the RPS for the equivalent of 50 pence per day. Just search RPS membership to find out more. This episode was presented by myself, Dawn Connolly, Julia Robinson, and Nigel Proteas. It was produced by Jeff Marsh. 